Please be seated. Good morning. I bring you greetings from Camp Tallowood. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. It was a remarkable time. Uh, I love camp, uh, but we had something going on here, lots of some things. But one very important something is that my youngest granddaughter, it sounds like I have a lot of them, doesn't it? I only have two. But my youngest granddaughter, Nori, Normandy Olive Brooks, turned this many yesterday. And I couldn't miss that. So I came home for that. And uh, it was, she really, really enjoyed the cake. I'm just saying. It was, uh, you know how that goes. And it was so fun. I had two granddaughters, Josie and Nori, at my house last night. And so I'm glad I didn't miss that. And, um, and also on my way home, I um, received word actually the night before that, that Clint Bateman uh, had gone to be with the Lord. Where he is, Philippians says, better by far. He's better by far. But I met with his family last evening to prepare for his service on Thursday. To be honest with you, this is kind of the way ministry is for the last 40 years for me. I live at this kind of nexus, this connection of great joy and great pain. And they're not as far apart from each other as you may think. Sometimes you're right in the middle of both of them at the same time. So all the ecstasy of worshiping together again with our students at camp after we played that game nine square in the air, you know that game I'm talking about, it's like volleyball, but you got the PVC pipes and I cannot describe to you how much I love that game. Our students might say I love that game too much, I don't know. But I played that game, and if you, if you make your way around the nine squares, you're, you're the king. And I actually made it to king along with some of your kids. I'm looking at some of you. And, and I just had to pause for a moment and celebrate my own sovereignty <laughs> as king of nine square in the air. And then when the game was over, we walked into the place of worship, and we met the real king whose sovereignty never ceases and to hear you know Jessica Lackey used to be Jessica Bird but she married Jacob and she's leading us in worship into the presence of God and John Durham who I knew when he was a teenager is preaching I can't believe we got him that's so amazing pastor of Highland Baptist in Waco and then and then the highlight of the worship was when Tim Gilmore who prays for every one of those students by name every day They brought him up on the platform and he prayed for us. And if you haven't heard Tim Gilmore pray, you need to hear Tim Gilmore pray because he prays for our church. And it was just so, so powerful. And then I'm driving home and I'm hearing these stories about Miami and I'm thinking about that. And so I think I need to know more about that. And so I do what you do and I search and I find. And what's interesting is it gives you the list of possible stories about Miami condo and then one of them says Miami condo whose fault was it and I just thought how quickly our world in this polarized world it's always somebody's fault there's somebody to blame and I'm not saying that's an unimportant question but that's surely not an all-important question is it and I thought so how do we as believers respond to a broken hurting World, without sort of entering into the chaos of whose fault is it, I'm thinking about 55 
units that just collapsed. And who was in there? And they're trying to figure that out. And then there's part of the building still standing. Here's what I know for sure. That the people who lived in the part that collapsed, they're, they're the neighbors of the people in the part of the building that didn't collapse. And what I was wondering as I read the scripture is, are they also our neighbors? Would you open your Bibles with me? Luke chapter 10. You know this story. That's what's going to make it hard for you today because you heard this before. And I've prayed for you this week. I prayed for myself that we'll hear it with fresh ears today. Luke 10, 25 to 37, limitless love. Stand with me for the reading of God's word. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus and Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? I mean, the lawyer, who, by the way, is not a constitutional expert. He's a biblical expert. The law was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he, beyond the scribes, beyond the Pharisees, he has dedicated his life to the study of the law. He knows it. He knows the ins and the outs. He understands it completely So why does he ask Jesus the question? And Luke gives us a couple of clues about whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. 
The first is that he asked Jesus this question not out of curiosity, but because he wanted to test, should I say trap, Jesus. That's the first hint we get. The second hint is when Jesus works through it with him and says, okay, go do that, he wanting to justify himself asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? I think he asked that question because in his mind, there was a bit of a disconnect between the Shema, the first one he quotes, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 through 7, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, heart, soul, and strength. Uh, These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit down, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. He knew that. It was probably in a little leather packet, a phylactery around his head as a reminder, I'm supposed to love God with all. But there must have been a little bit of a disconnect between that and Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And he just wanted to be sure Am I the only one? It sounds like there were parameters on his pity. There were limits to his love. There were some people that in his mind were beyond the love of God. And he was willing to love people to a point. And so in the story, he's asking Jesus a question. How do you answer that question? Who is is my neighbor? G.K. Chesterton said, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. And we have to love our neighbor because he's there. And the nearness of our neighbor is providential. God provides that. Why? Because God never gets the address wrong. Do we love our neighbors? And if we're going to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, Jesus seems to say to this religious expert, that's going to impact the way that you love people. I know you know this story, and you're thinking right now, I should have stopped at the corner there at Gessner and, the, and, and I-10. I should have stopped there on the service road this week because there was a person there who was asking for money, and I would feel better if I had actually given them some money. Just to be clear, this story is more than that. Jesus is pointing out to us a different way of life. And when the man asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What Jesus doesn't say is, you don't do things to inherit things. I don't know about you, if you're anticipating some inheritance from your family. But if I said to you, so what did you do to get that? You would just have to say, well, I was born. And what did you have to do with being born? Well, not much, really. 
But Jesus doesn't correct him at that point. Instead, Jesus, as a good rabbi, answers his question with a question. Do you know, my rabbi friends still do that. In fact, the story, local synagogue, one communicant, parishioner, member of the synagogue, asked the rabbi, why do rabbis always answer questions with questions? His rabbi stopped for a moment and pondered and said, why shouldn't rabbis always answer questions with questions? Well, Jesus is a good rabbi, and he's answering it with a question. Jesus, on other occasions, answered the same question in the very same way. He, he said, you got to love God with all, and you got to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, this guy gives the perfect answer. Um, he, he gets 100 on the test. He's got a four-point but as Fred Craddock says, it is possible to get a four point and still to miss the point. And from his point of view, he knew the law inside and out, but he didn't always let that change the way he related to people. So when he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells a story. I've titled this series, Telling a Better Story one of the best apologetics books that came out in the last year, Telling a Better Story. Christianity has a better story. And part of our story is the story of God's amazing love for us and his limitless love. And so Jesus tells this story about this person who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a precipitous descent. If you rode it on a bus, you may not have noticed, but it's 17 miles and it's like 2,000 meters difference in height. It's, it's a pretty steep climb all the way up. It's, it's kind of a rugged road really and it was a place where people were robbed. In the Arabic, it's still called uh, the way of blood because there were a lot of muggings and this is, as Haddon Robinson said, a case study of a mugging and in this case study of the mugging, as Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us, the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the question that the Samaritan uh, asks is, if I don't help this man, what will happen to him? It's a better question. It's a more important question. So the first thing we notice, by the way, when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? My study of first century Judaism tells me this. He was not asking, what can I do to make sure I go to heaven when I die? This is where you should be raising your eyebrows at me. He's not asking, how do I get to heaven when I die? He's asking, how do I get the life of God? Eternal life is not just life of a different quantity forever. It's life of a different quality. And that's why Jesus says to him, if you do these things, you will live. He's not saying someday in heaven. He's saying you will begin to experience life. So two thoughts today. Those who refuse to love their neighbor never really live, no matter how many years they have on this earth. If we don't love our neighbors, we don't really experience life. It's as if Jesus said that the opposite is, and if you don't do this, you're not really going to live. And it's not 
unconcerned about our eternity with God in heaven. It's not unconcerned about that, but, but Jesus points to the here and now to say what we do after we become followers of Jesus makes a lot of difference. So, so if, if really the message of the gospel could be truncated to four spiritual laws or the, or the Roman road, then all we would have is just a few verses from the book of Romans and that would be our whole Bible. But there are, after all, lots of things that Jesus said. And it strikes me that in our effort to get to the bottom line of what are the minimum requirements for me to get into heaven and to get everybody else into heaven, we may have missed some things along the way. Like how being a follower of Jesus affects the way we actually live. And Jesus points out just 14 words, by the way, the actions of the priest and 11 words, the actions of the Levite and 60 words, the actions of the Samaritan, just to see the, the weight of it. And I don't want to throw the priest and the Levite under the bus. I think I had a pastor when I was a kid who said, this is the pastor and the deacon. But here's the thing. Whenever I throw people under the bus, and then I, later in the day I look in the mirror and I turn, there are always these tire tracks on my, butt, on my back. And I'm thinking, hmm. So Jesus is not saying, these awful people. He's not saying that. We, we don't know why. I mean, maybe they knew Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbors yourself. But in Leviticus 21, it says if you're a priest, you can't defile yourself. And maybe, this is what I always heard as a kid, they were headed up to the temple and on their way to the temple. So they can't afford, they can't afford to be defiled. because So they're choosing between duty and duty. Why don't we love our neighbors in active ways? It's probably not just because we just dislike people. They did an experiment on seminary students who, for my part, probably deserve to be experimented on. But aren't you glad this morning we didn't, like, put somebody out there in, in the middle of where Tallowood reaches Perthshire, just lay a person out in the road to see how many of you would stop and help? But at the seminary, they did that. And what they found was the ones who were in a hurry were the ones who didn't stop. Hurry is not of the devil, somebody has said. Hurry is the devil. It'll, it'll distract you and keep you from doing right in loving God and, and loving neighbors. I don't really want to throw them. What I do want to observe is they did see the man. It looks like in the Greek that they crossed the road to miss him. And I was just wondering, is there anybody that makes you cross the road? Anybody you forget about. I was at Jason's one night, like me, a friend of mine, Earl Touchstone, you know, Earl Meredith, and, and they, they, their car was broken into while they were in Jason's. And uh, so they're waiting for the police to come and, you know, we're waiting for our food together and I'm eating my chocolate ice cream cone, which I do while I wait for my food to come. And I'm just there and we're talking and then my food is ready and their food is ready and I don't know. So I get my food and, and I see them down. I see Meredith down the way and I get in my car and family's waiting for me to get the food home. This is a common story, isn't it, for me? And anyway, I'm bringing the food home and about halfway home I'm thinking, why didn't I stop and talk to Meredith? That's an awful experience. I know what it's like to be robbed. I was mugged on a beach one time in Hasifi, Brazil 
on a mission trip with some missionaries and we were threatened with a, a, a broken bottle and, and watches were stolen and, and it was just so unsettling. But that night I was just in a hurry. I'm not letting them off the hook. I'm just saying there are lots of reasons why we don't help people. But Haddon Robinson said it well when he said, your neighbor is anyone whose needs you see and whose needs you're able to meet. Without question, the gospel is more than social action, but it's certainly not devoid. It's just the way to get to heaven. Really? I don't think a study of scripture bears that up. I think it's more than that. That the life God gives us, which leads us to eternity, changes the way we live. Or we never really got the life. It strikes me that that's, that's the teaching of it. I think about Cameron Holopeter, who had a seizure disorder. You remember this story from New York? I think it's in the, the little book that I wrote years ago. I think I, I used this story. And Holopeter is standing there on the subway and apparently has a seizure. Remember this? And he falls on the track of the subway. And just like the priest and the Levite, there were a lot of people. If you've ever been in New York where there's a subway, I mean, there's a lot of people watching that day. And I don't know what got into Wesley Autry, 50-year-old construction worker, but he sees Cameron there and he sees a train coming in the distance and he jumps down on the track, pulls Cameron's arms in, holds his legs in with his own legs and, and holds him there on the track and the train goes over them and he saves Cameron's life that day. Media asks him, why did you do that? He said, well, I think, I think we're supposed to help each other. But of all the people on the subway that day, he was the one who took action. I mean, the rest of the story is they gave him a free trip to Disney World for that, you know? And I was just thinking, is that, would that be why he did it? I mean, I've been to Disney World, you know? Imagine him coming up from the track. What are you doing now? I'm going to Disney World. It's a small world after all. I've been to Disney World. There's nothing there that would make me do that. So, so why? Why should we act? Who was Cameron Holopeter to him? Oh, another person created in the image of God. That's who Cameron Holopeter was. More specifically, he was the one who was close by who had the need. And that's Haddon Robinson's definition of neighbor. And those who don't love our neighbors, I'm not sure we ever really live, but watch this. Those who want to live God's life love the hurting and the different and give life to them. And in the ancient world, when they told these stories, it was usually like this. Here's the, the way it went. There was a priest and there was a, a Levite and then there was an Israelite. I'm telling you, the people in the crowd that day were, were waiting to hear. The priest didn't get it right and the Levite didn't get it right, but at least the layperson, the Israelite, he got it right and he helped the person. So when Jesus said, Samaritan, I'm pretty sure in the, in the crowd there was a... <gasps> Because the Samaritan was the person. How do we know that they didn't like the Samaritans? Look, when I hear Samaritan, are you like me? What I hear is humanitarian. 
I mean, there's Samaritan on the names of hospitals. There's Samaritan's Purse that helps people who are in need. We have made a thing out of this. My neighbor who lives down the street, Bob, we're writing an essay to, together about compassion, and he's very upfront. He doesn't believe everything I believe. But he, I said to him yesterday in a, in a text, I said, you know, I'm, I'm preaching on the Good Samaritan tomorrow. And he wrote back and he said, because that, that's weird because I'm titling my essay Looking for the Good Samaritan. Well, I suppose we all are, especially if we're Cameron Holopater or we're this man who's been beaten by robbers and left. Here's the Greek word, hemithanatos, uh, half dead. He's half dead. He's going to be wholly dead if somebody doesn't do something. And the pouring out of resources by the Samaritan is shocking in its own way. A neighbor is someone, Larson said, a neighbor is someone who says, what's mine is God's and what is God's belongs to my neighbor. Why? Because my neighbor belongs to God. So why would I take things that belong to God and not share them with my neighbor when my neighbor is in need? But we have all these things that distance us. And it strikes me that we, we're, we're caught up in it. We're, we're so caught up in it that we, we immediately polarize it and we want to we wanna debate. I heard J.D. Greer preach recently. He was the last president of our Southern Baptist Convention. And, and he said, so if we care more about preserving the status quo of the institution than we do about people who've been hurt, we're wrong. And he, he started, you know, sometimes preachers meddle be it for me to do that, but he said, if we care more about CRT than we do about racism, people who are being hurt by racism, we miss the point. You, you can get a four point and miss the point. And it strikes me that at some point in our lives, we, we move to a place and we're all this, this sort of collection of experiences, but I grew up in these incredibly diverse churches we were all military we were all americans and we from we were from every walk of life and we gathered together and we sang the same hymns and we loved god and and somehow i just thought that's the way church was and then i arrive in texas in 1980 and it's not very much like that in waco in those days here's a story just a leaf from my own journal my sixth grade year we moved to washington dc and we move into a neighborhood and and there's a lot, a lot of racial tension in that area, in our schools, and, and then our neighborhood, and there's this integration of our neighborhood going on, and people aren't talking to each other. People who are different just don't talk to each other, but they talk about each other, and, and somebody moved into our neighborhood, and I just remember the conversations of the adults and thinking, what's all that about? And then one day, a little girl who lived across the street from us, she must have been, I don't know five or six, I can't remember. But she had a bad encounter with a Siberian Husky dog. She was bitten on the face. And I just remember, we all ran across the street and we all just, we were just this big circle around her and we're all looking at this little girl and we're like, ah, what do we do, what do we do? And we're just kind of paralyzed, bunch of kids wondering how to help another kid. And our new neighbor, about whom people had been talking, walked out of his house, saw what was going on, 
ran in. He ran in with his, I'll never forget his white dress shirt and his tie and his, and his dress pants. And he got down on the ground and he picked up that little girl. And he said, call an ambulance. And somebody did and the ambulance came and they took her away. And the little girl's okay. She's okay. I mean, she, it was a horrible experience. But I just remember as a sixth grader standing there and looking at our neighbor that everybody had talked about but not talked to. And his white shirt just covered in blood. And thinking, we need to change the way we think. A Samaritan helped and spent and poured his resources out. You just never know. You, you never know. Just this morning, I was walking in Hershey Park, as I, as I do on Sunday mornings, and I, I ran into my friend Mike. We used to coach baseball together. His son, Michael, and my son, Chase, played on the same baseball team, and I think we, we were assistant coaches together, and, and we just, you know, just talked a little bit, and he said, you know, I'm doing better, and, and uh, I'm, I'm going to try to walk five miles today. His beautiful golden retriever, and when he said that, I remembered it was about six weeks ago. He was over here at Memorial Middle School track. He's a runner too. And he's, he's running and a couple of our guys are over there. Cody Adamak and, and Danny Struzik are there. And, and he walked over to them and struck up a conversation. And right in the middle of, right in the middle of a, a sentence, he just went boom and stopped breathing. They called it a widowmaker heart attack. And Cody and Danny went into action. And they, they saved his life that day. Let me just put it this way. Had they not been there and done what they did, I would not have run into my friend Mike in the park this morning. But when the time came, they were ready. Look, this, we were recipients. We're, we're, in the middle of the freeze, I mean, we don't have any power and we don't have any water, we don't have everything. And when you know it, one of our families in the church, I don't know how, but they just have stockpiled stuff in their garage. They can't get their cars in their garage because they got so much stuff. And that day they heard about us and they came and helped us and they took us to their garage and they, they, they had water because we couldn't find water anywhere. And I was trying to buy those, you know, those, those logs that you light with Duraflame or whatever they're called. And I was looking, and there were none in the city. I went to so many stores looking for them. I couldn't find them. And, and, and David, my friend, said, um, hey, I got some of these Duraflame logs. You need these? He's just got a stack of them. Wow. But it strikes me that they were prepared so that when the time came, they were able to help. And that in its own way, this is, this is what love is about. This is what love does. Love does. Go and do this, Jesus says, and you will live. It's not just feeling guilty about not helping people who are uh, hurting. It, it's, it's about putting no boundaries. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And if you're like my neighbor in his essay, if you're searching for the Good Samaritan, may I introduce him to you this morning? Because one day in heaven when he was filled with heaven's praises, he looked down at the brokenness of our world and said, I'm going in 
Like Wesley Autry, he just dove down on the tracks of the world and he came as a baby and he grew up in Nazareth and he became a carpenter. And when he was 30, he left home and he, he taught and he performed miracles and he was setting things right, making blind people see and deaf people hear and lame people walk. And then when the time came for him to pay the price, he opened the purse of heaven and stretched out his arms on a cross and died for us and poured out his blood like oil and wine on our broken world so that he could heal us. And if that weren't enough to make it right, when he went back to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit and said, sustain them until, thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done and it turns out it's not done and what we do this week has real time impact on eternity as if we could waste time without damaging eternity what we do matters go and do these things and he says then you will live and I thought of John Oxenham's poem Love ever gives, forgives, outlives. Love ever stands with open hands. And as long as it lives, love gives. This is love's prerogative to give and give and give and when I say Tallow would be a life-giving church what I'm saying to you as a community of God's love is let's not be the kind of people who take life from others let's be the kind of people who give life to others and when I hear the us and them Christian versus non-Christian I just always think sometimes it sounds like in our dialogue that our goal is to make the bad people do what we want them to do which by the way will not work it will not work but Jesus didn't come to make bad people good he came to make dead people like us live and by God's grace he has given us life. Was it Mary Oliver who asked in, in poem, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And Jesus says, love God and love all your neighbors. And if you're wondering what to do with your life, give it away to God and give it away to others and watch what he does let's pray father i thank you for your amazing life and love we stand in the center of that love today and we need lord to know what it means to love without limits we thought your love was a zero sum lord and now we find that your love is infinite and you have loved us infinitely so we should share that love not sparingly but generously. Show us how. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.